Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. I'm back. As I mentioned on the last episode, it is getting a little bit more difficult and tricky uh, to book guests for the podcast. Um, if you have any ideas for who you would like me to try and reach out to via social media or whatever other method I can find, please let me know. Just search for Back to Britpop on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Send me a message and I'll do my best to hunt and track those people down for you. In the meantime, though, I've got a cracker today. I had a lovely conversation with Wojciech Godzisch of Symposium. Wojciech was very generous with his time, and we have a lovely rambling conversation about all sorts of things. As per usual, I'll be back at the end of the interview to talk about all those ways that you can support this podcast. But in the meantime, here's Wojciech. Welcome to the podcast, Wojciech Godzisch. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's my pleasure entirely. I I think <laughs> I was going to say I hope, but that would yeah, be ridiculous. well. We haven't started yet. You don't know. <laughs> I hope it's your pleasure too. <laughs> uh, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in in Saint Leonard's in the basement of my home, which I share with my wife and children and cat. And the basement is my now my music area, where I have my upright piano and my guitars and my unyielding unwieldy cd collection and uh, music books collection and smattering of vinyl and maybe 30 odd a4 pads of my music manuscript and jottings and the crates of demos and all kinds of interesting things and even some symposium master tapes and amps that have been on stage at Glastonbury with me through the years and all manner of things which mean a lot to me including as I'm looking around signed Tori Amos photo and signed Kate Bush poster and all manner of things from music related it's my music cave basically I would say this is the ultimate man cave isn't it this is the sort of thing I aspire to well I'm spoilt and at the risk of um making your listeners despise me i've actually got a proper man cave on the other end of my house which is in the attic so the top that's got all my um old dvds like thousands of them and and a big screen in it and it's also got a piano in it (laughs) and it's just a place where i can look out over the sea and um and just relax but I also want that to be for my for my girls to grow up and be able to go up there it's it's really like a teenage sort of I feel like a teenager up there well down here I feel like uh, like an old man connecting to the earth let's take you back a bit if you don't mind uh, no, just I love it. <laughs> um what what started it all to you what was your musical kind of upbringing and uh, influences well I think when I was about 10 I got given cassette tapes of Enya's Watermark and Madonna's True Blue albums. Uh, and then there was also a Bruce Willis tape I had. You know, Bruce Willis did two albums. Yes. Did you, I don't know if you know that. But, yeah, um, I know. He, I knew he was a singer. I didn't know he had how, many, how many albums, a singer, inverted commas. <laughs> yeah. So, and, uh, but one of them I loved, the first one I had around that time, and it was called uh, The Return of Bruno which is a ridiculous <laughs> name. And I think he had a hit single of it, Under the Boardwalk. He covered Under the Boardwalk, yes. that classic standard. And um, <laughs> I actually lo- loved it. 
and it meant it meant quite a lot to me at that time and um a friend of mine kim who's recently moved down to st leonard's she's she's also a huge fan she couldn't believe it and we sort of uh, bonded over our love of bruce willis's musical output and she's actually an interviewer and she managed to interview bruce willis once and she mentioned this to him and he he thought she was taking the piss out of him and really just didn't um ever believe that she was sincere he okay. thought it was just a bad joke she was like okay okay let's just move on and gloss it she was like no seriously yeah it's actually really good and he just thought she was being sarcastic <laughs> i think um but he anyway. takes himself far too seriously that guy anyway you think so yes i don't know yes. how you can i was a big fan of moonlighting when i was in that in that era i used to watch it in bed with my mum and i was about 12 years old anyway i mean we're not here to talk about bruce Willis. <laughs> so the question was um yeah musical influences so yeah there was that madonna and that enya tape for better or worse and I loved all of that. And I was a huge Madonna fan and then a huge Prince fan as well around the same era, which was getting slightly more credible. But then, and I don't know whether this is more or less credible, but the guitar music I discovered, maybe fairly boringly, were, um, began with Iron Maiden. Um, this was 1988. So it was when their Seventh Son of a Seventh Son album came out which was their seventh album and um, just by coincidence <laughs> and um, and Nirvana, Bleach and Nevermind were, I had a 45 minute blank tape on, on either side. First side was Bleach, second side was Nevermind. And I'd listened to that in my Walkman on the bus to and from school religiously. And then Appetite for Destruction as well and mm -hmm. Def Leppard. And these were all on cassettes too. And it's funny now because like Def Leppard and Guns N' Roses are just these kind of cliched karaoke rock of ages type bands that people sort of mock, but also genuinely love, I suppose. Um, but to me, I've sort of lost perspective on them to tell you the truth, but they would, they're, they're definitely in my DNA now. Like they are probably for a lot of people of our generation those two albums appetite for destruction and hysteria and just sort of um, in there for better or worse but i think the nirvana thing made me want to be more sort of honest and less preening and around the same time me and my friends really got into red hot chili peppers and emf <laughs> strange mm -hmm. combo but um loved them as well and that meant a lot to me but I think that those were the main ones at that time for me and then going into symposium it, it is all the skate punk stuff started coming out rancid offspring green day no effects bad religion and those were really the pennywise lag wagon all those bands were were really present for me and so in terms um, of like picking up a bit, an instrument and starting to, to play something and, and writing yeah. and things like that, I mean, yeah. what, was there a, is there a moment you can remember sort of writing yeah. down stuff? Yeah. Um, the, the very first thing I learned to play on the guitar was I got one of those guitar tablature books of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And the guy who got me into guitars was a guy oh. called Brendan Hartley. 
who um, was a guitar technician that um, he ended up being a guitar tech in uh, Denmark Street for a few years, which in Denmark Street, for the people that don't know, is this famous street in London where it's, it has just guitar shops on it and some mm-hmm. piano shops, but basically it's, and it's got a really rich musical heritage. People used to write songs there. They had songwriting factories on Denmark Street. And then I think now it's still, despite that area being massively overdeveloped and the Astoria venue opposite being knocked down. I think Denmark Street still has guitar shops, the old historical guitar shops on it. Mm. And anyway, Brendan got me into into guitars. And, um, you know, I think he was the one who told me I should listen to Guns N' Roses. And, uh, even though I think he was a Megadeth and Metallica guy. And I remember buying an Iron Maiden t-shirt with him when we were on a school trip to Greece. Anyway, um, the point of saying that, for, yeah, so the first, I got one of these guitar tablature books and it was Jimi Hendrix. And um, I slavishly learnt uh, the intro to Purple Haze and how to play Purple Haze. And that was the first thing. And it and it's uh, probably be the last thing that fires through my synapses when I leave this world as well. <laughs> Could be worse. <laughs> How to play that? Yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> and um, and then I moved. I got the guitar tablature for Iron Maiden, and sort of learned that very nerdily as well. Um, but then it was really Nirvana, and for that you don't really need a guitar tab book. You could just pick up the chords quite easily from the recordings, and that's really what taught me songwriting. Was like, oh, okay. So these chords, and then you have a verse, and then you have a chorus, and then you can just repeat that, and you can put it in different combinations with a solo in the middle, or um, you know. And it was basically as simple as that. And and I haven't really, um, I, I I haven't really progressed since then. <laughs> I've just plowed that same furrow. <laughs> so I hesitate to say I haven't really developed beyond that, but um, maybe I have. It's funny because I, I had a similar start in with the guitar bands because I was into, um, well, not similar. I was into pop. I got into all the real cheesy stuff, which now I think is brilliant. Uh, you, you know, Hewlett in the News, um, mm. uh, Paula Abdul, Michael Bolton. Mm. Uh, I saw Graham. Janet Jackson. I saw <laughs> Janet Jackson on the um, Black Cat tour and uh, at Wembley Arena. Anyway, but, sorry, but then. Something happened. I migrated to to thrash, thrash metal, and then I my first ever gig was um, the Almighty Wild Hearts and Curb Dog. Wow! Uh, and then I went. To, uh, my second gig was Pantera Megadeth on the on the Countdown to Extinction tour, and <laughs> I think I did. I went to see Megadeth. Uh, well, Megadeth, no Metallica, Milton Keynes. But I got well into thrash. It's weird, isn't it? How you go from one, all of a sudden you wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to be a thrush metaler. <laughs> well, you know, the, my, my um, sort of count, counter to that, counterpoint to that is, um, I think my first gig when I was 15 was really Tanita Tickerum at the Hammersmith ah. Odeon, okay? And who I sub- subsequently met, actually, and um, tried to write some songs with down the line. But anyway... That's another tale that is an hour in the telling. But um, that same year when I was 15, I tell everyone my proper gig, first gig, was Rage Against the Machine at Brixton. And they played with Tool and Wool. And uh, that was really my first 
proper gig because yeah. you know it was like a proper rock gig the Tanita Tigran one was just sort of sat down watching this sort of um lounge jazz type 80s thing well it wasn't 80s it would have been 1990 but anyway um yeah so I totally get that m- moving about and the other thing I haven't mentioned which I have to mention is um unfortunately for some people but it is the doors the doors was when I was 15 and I discovered the doors that was a massive huge thing for me and that was actually alongside my discovery of Tori Amos the people are probably hanging their heads in their hands (laughs) and switching off this podcast now but you know I I don't mind I don't think Ross the singer of Symposium Ross I don't think he'll mind me saying that he is also as huge a Doors and Tori Amos nut as I am, if not more so. But we both just see something in those artists we love. Yeah, definitely. In terms of like the bass, did you just was there a, a punch up for the guitar rolls then, or was it in Symposium? <laughs> what happened in Symposium was they were already a band, and um, they had a. I think they did have a punch physical punch up with their bassist at the time. And um, he threw him out, or he never wanted to go back. So they had a big gaping bass hole in their lineup. And um, it just made sense for me to pick up the bass. And I had a bass, and um, I didn't mind stepping in and playing the bass, but it was never my intention ever in my life to play the bass in a band. The only reason I got one was so that I could put it down on on the nirvana type recordings i was making at home on my little four track but um i thought i thought yeah this is fun and it's simple so it means i can jump around more and you know headbang more because there's less strings on it and less to go wrong so i will just play the bass and that was sort of the ethos that kind of defined symposium for a time you were already already writing songs then prior to sort of getting involved with the band Yeah, I think that's why they asked me to um, come and play bass because they knew, because I've been circulating demo tapes of mine at the school, at the secondary school we were all in together. So my reputation sort of preceded me a little bit and they knew I was this, oh, you're that guy who does these tapes of his own songs. And I think they had half half an eye on looking to do some of them. So um, before long, we were just... I was just teaching them all, all my originals because they were just covering, as I say, you know, Green Day, Nirvana and Offspring and all of these bands, they were covering them and it was great. And, um, but, you know, we wanted to do our own originals too. So we had some ready-made ones there and then we, we went from there. So what was your, if, you know, your demo tapes then, what kind of, genre was that you say sort of sort of nirvana-y sort of grungy angsty sort of stuff yeah so so a lot of those symposium songs were already written before i joined symposium so i think i taught them things like bury you and um farewell to twilight um i think they were already so it was it was of that ilk it was of the sort of indie punk ilk and i think the first one we wrote as a band more or less was drink the sunshine where will had come up with this little riff and i wrote a song around it and then fair with a friend i wrote for them in a very much a skate punk vein because i knew that was their kind of thing that they liked 
Yeah, so it was that kind of stuff, really. When you started to sort of uh, get a, a kind of portfolio of songs together, I don't know why I call it mm. portfolio. An album. <laughs> <laughs> That's the traditional term. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, when you started yeah. to get an album of songs, you started to, did you start touring like in a conventional way? Were you doing gigs? Or, not sorry, no, touring, think... but gigging. Sorry. No, in um, we did 1994, we did two gigs which were just at community centres in in Hammersmith where we were all from and went to school uh, just for our friends and I think we charged them two pounds to get in and then to have a sort of a bucket of 200 pounds at the end of the night was, was seemed really exciting I remember that but then I made these tapes um, demo demo tapes classic demo tapes and mm. set out about 50 envelopes to 50 venues around London who were you know all of the classic ones I think the first one that responded was the Rock Garden in Covent Garden do you remember that place I don't remember that one it's no longer there predictably and um and then we and we got you know loads of others like the Roby um in Finsbury Park and loads in Camden like the Falcon the Monarch of these old places place you know the brixton windmill and other places um so and then just uh, so 1995 was spent practically every weekend we were going to a different pub venue club type place that would have us playing and we sort of cut our teeth around london at these places and either will's dad would drive or Hagop's dad or my dad and would drive us there and pick us up with all our gear and um and it was that kind of thing really and so that stage that stage presence that you had because i mean one of the things that you know always stands out about symposium was the energy and the the, the, the stage presence and what you brought to the to live music really um does that was that developed then over a period of time or were you all like that straight out of the out of the gate Straight out of the gate, I remember the very first uh, rehearsal. And we've got some photographs. A friend of mine was there taking pictures just for fun because he wanted to be a photographer. And um, the, the, the rehearsals would end up with us um, in a pile of equipment and mangled instruments and stuff. We were just full of, of energy and excitement. And we just had this restless restlessness about us. And um, yeah, I mean, just so much energy to expel. Um, don't know where it came from or whether it was just love of music and being alive or whether it's because we were in a very strict Catholic school and some of us had very strict uh, parenting backgrounds or something, but we just needed to get this out and, uh, and just, you know, just a love of loudness and thrashing around and, <laughs> you know. It's just pretty, pretty classic and pretty cliched in a way, but um, but quite beautiful in a in another way. And so it was just all we couldn't help it, and we just could not help it. Even when symposium properly started, and I remember thinking, you know, I don't have to do this. I don't have to go ballistic. But as soon as the first chord would crash in, I just couldn't help it. It was like we were. It was really like being possessed. By something it's the closest i've come to it do you think that helped in terms of just developing uh, a fan base i think it I, th I think it did um 
because what was helpful was we I quit school and Will quit school Ross went to a different college and we had lots of different um, groups of friends who would all congregate and come to this uh, come to the shows basically so we sort of had a ready-made audience of like a hundred and then they would tell their friends and then there'd be 200 and it was very much as much as you can get a grassroots kind of spread mouth of word spread that's how that's how it uh, seemed and came about and they would go nuts as well but I don't remember that really affecting me that much it didn't really drive me because even when the gigs were empty and we played two man and a dog and um, and we actually did that much later on across America as well like played in bars two man and a dog and it didn't if anything we we were even more um crazy and energetic on stage and and spontaneous you know we 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 never calmed down i think the larger the audience the calmer we became <laughs> yeah. paradoxically and so when did you start to kind of get record company uh interest and was that was that soon after that you started to sort of get this life yeah. following yeah i mean it's so crazy to think back now but at the end of 1995 i, w- I was completely disillusioned and i thought hang on we've put everything into this we've been playing for a year that's it, it's never going to happen. And I just had no idea about, you know, tenacity and longevity and how long these things take for people and how much work you have to actually put into them. Mm. But it actually happened pretty quick for us, really, considering, I mean, alarmingly quickly. So in the beginning of, I think at the end of 95, um, the next door neighbour of Hagop, our guitarist, um, his next door neighbour just offered to manage us he liked what he saw because Hagop um, asked him along to a gig mm. he became our manager he had contacts and he was um, very able to um, exploit those contacts and exploit things in the music industry so he would he was basically um, fermenting a kind of uh, rabid bidding war between record labels and other and and agents and all sorts of people so he would put on a gig make sure it was rammed with rabid fans bring all these record company people along and just do the classic thing which i'm sure you can imagine you know and just make it good and uh, appealing and exciting and you know feel like they had to have a part of this and it was at that point in the in the music industry where i think people were still had lots of money and were waving checkbooks around and doing huge amounts of cocaine and all other manner of things and so yeah that happened but in the end we just we went with the antithesis of all of that which was called quarter marshall's infectious records which was a small honest um, label filled with integrity and love for the artists rather than love of of money mm. and thank god for that really yeah and that was when we signed with them in the mid- middle of 1996 yeah and i was doing lots of drama stuff at the time in in west london and i had to make a choice whether to go on tour with symposium and make a proper go of it or um do do the play I was supposed to be doing but I I chose symposium and uh, 
the play had to go on without me. <laughs> would you remember the first kind of um, studio sessions then that you had? Because obviously that would have been the next sort of um, yeah, stop. Hugely. Yeah, massively. What were they like? Um, they were amazing. Uh, <laughs> the very first one was with a producer called Clive Martin, and we went to Rockfield Studios in Monmouth, mm. which are, are quite legendary now. In fact, I think they recently had their own little BBC4 documentary because I think they closed down. And that Rockfield was where Oasis recorded, Ash recorded their debut, Oasis recorded their debut, I believe, or if not mm. their debut, certainly the one after that. And probably most famously, Queen recorded A Night at the Opera and Bohemian Rhapsody in there on that piano in there. And when we went in there, um, the Stone Roses had just finished the Second Coming album, which had taken them five years or so. So I think the engineer there, a guy called Nick Brine, he was um, very pleased to have a, <laughs> a different <laughs> band in there for a change. <laughs> Until he heard us play, and then he wished the Stone Roses had been back. <laughs> no, but... Um, yeah it was it was incredible you know there's sheep and cows and we stayed over there we we sheep and cows in the fields nearby and at the window in the mornings and one one rock and roll story i do remember was um because we got looked after very well so um there would be a communal kitchen and they just ask us what we want for breakfast for dinner they just go and get it and make it for us i mean it was just living the dream basically when i look back at it now that's essentially what it was even though I didn't realise it at the time. But um, I do <laughs> remember one night, things got slightly out of hand, maybe after a, a, a lengthy trip to Monmouth Town, to one of the pubs there, and came back and carried on drinking. And we each had these separate rooms, separate bedrooms, which were all around the central kind of uh, living quarters where we were staying. Hmm. Um, which is, is done really communally and lovely, you know, big fireplace and sofas and everything. And all our rooms were just off it. And I just remember hearing this massive commotion in the communal area as we, as I was sort of settling in to go to bed. And I just gingerly opened my door and poked my nose around the corner. And someone, naming no names, had obviously set off one of those powder fire extinguishers okay. and everything seemed to be covered in this fine white powder but like everything sofas and furnishings and and so I just gently closed the door and <laughs> pretended I hadn't seen it and went to sleep and the next morning and I woke up and dreading what I was going to find and I opened it and it was immaculately clean and the cleaners had already been in and got it all out. And and I think the sort of lesson was, you know, you think you're rock and roll, but we've seen far worse than this, and this doesn't phase us in, uh, yeah. at all. And after that, we didn't even try. We, <laughs> <laughs> so, that's good. Rock and roll cleaners. <laughs> yeah, they sent for the rock and roll cleaners that day. The, the album did well, didn't it? I mean, in terms of coming out, you did some great, you did a good tour and you did some good supports and some pretty decent TV stuff as well. I mean, did, do you remember like, you know, feeling that this was 
this is happening sort of thing did you all kind of collectively look at each other and go this is you know this is kind of the dream is is coming to fruition <laughs> I think the overwhelming the overwhelming feeling I think if I'm being honest was one of just like thinking how how of ludicrousness and how ridiculous everything was and mm. um, uh, it's crazy that we're doing that you know there's the sort of you, you know the story of going from playing at the Dublin Castle to the next week after being signed supporting the Red Hot Chili Peppers at Wembley Arena um, who were heroes of mine and I remember EMF and I mentioned to you EMF earlier who we were listening to alongside Red Hot Chili Peppers me and my friends and um, they were in attendance too and things like that and having Chad Smith watch us from the side of the stage and and then eventually going on and playing with Metallica, playing with uh, Foo Fighters on the Color and the Shape tour, and things like that. that you, you know, and that was, I think, I think Dave Grohl was the real pinch yourself moment for me. Having, you know, as I talked to you about Nirvana, and uh, having him being a really lovely person and very warm and welcoming, and joining in with things and watching us and uh you know there there wasn't a sense of being welcomed into a rock and roll fraternity or something like that or you know heavy metal kudos there was a bit of that feeling at the Kerrang awards every time mm. and because there were always these massive legends at the Kerrang awards like lemmy or um, you know ozzy or so something as ludicrous as that you know these just you just don't get any more legendary than those people who turn up and you're thinking, well, we're, we're kind of, are we actually a minor part of this? But then, you know, you have the imposter syndrome as well. And you think, you know, we've just blagged our way in here. We're not really heavy metal legends or going to be. Were you feeling the pressure as well? And in, in terms of being, because you, you touched on the imposter syndrome and things like that, but obviously you were obviously, you were doing well and you were you were asked to play support slots and 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 touring and things mm. like that but mm. the, the the pressure on on such young sort of uh, artists what, what was that like for you or did you feel it at all yeah possibly I know Ross said that to me recently actually he said he said the pressure must have been massive on you to write the songs because mm. everyone else I know Will was writing songs and Ross was writing songs out of um, the love of it and the joy of it, I think, and uh, just wanting to do it and needing to do it. Well, I think I did feel I need to to write, you know, um, if not hits exactly, then something quite commercial and catchy to keep the ship afloat, to keep interest going, to keep, you know, I think I did kind of feel that a bit. But I mean, we 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 were going for such a short time before it all ended at the end of 1999 that I don't think I don't think the pressure had enough time to really properly build up. And plus, I was very prolific anyway. I was writing about 50, 50 to 100 songs a year anyway. That's just that's just what I would do mm. uh, sometimes very quickly, sometimes like five songs in a day. And I don't know whether that was just because it was a bit of a sort of a meat grinder, you know, sausage making operation. And I just felt like I had to bang them out. 
<laughs> mm. but, uh, uh, or whether it's because I think I just loved it. And also there was definitely a part of me that loved it. And also, you know, one of my heroes was Prince. And I always admired and looked up to that kind of just do it, just put the, get it all out there and just throw, yeah, the, everything, throw everything against the wall and see what sticks sort of uh, thing. Lyrically though, in, in, in yeah. songs, where are you coming what are you drawing on? What are your sort of main inspirations for the sort of song? What well, now or, or well, I mean, oh well, I guess it would be interesting to see what the changes have been <laughs> over the what years. Have been any changes at all? <laughs> because, um, like when I did my, I released my solo debut album, I think around about two thousand and eight, and I thought, I thought it was some sort of progression, and it was somehow more more mature or sober or just better somehow, but. Um, I'm not sure it is now. It's very, it's, it's actually, I can really see similarities to Symposium and everything. And maybe that's not surprising at all. Um, but I am actually surprised when I listen to the Symposium stuff now um, at how, how well it kind of holds up. And I'm not sure I was proud of it then or cared at all. I think actually I do remember desperately caring what other people thought of it. Mm. And now I, I don't, but I do see, and I have seen over the intervening years that that music and those recorded works of symposium really are of value to a lot of people, or even if it's just to a small amount of people, um, they, they, they're of real value. And I think I looked at it very cheaply for a long time. Um, and I, I don't know why that is. And I haven't really figured it out yet, whether it's just sort of a passing of time or um, nostalgia or maybe just going insane mm. in my old age. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But it's but, nice. It's nice. You know, and it, obviously it had value to people back then, but I just didn't see it. Um, so is it potentially because you're caught you're caught up in it it's, it's it's you're in the eye of the storm aren't you essentially with that sort of thing and then I as think you that it, that it is one of my main uh, memories of that time is 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 what a maelstrom it was so many competing emotional things swirling around and going through my 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 head and and I think everyone's and really intense you know, without wanting to, to make it sound um, traumatic or, or you know, mm. anything like that. It, it was just, um, it was just a very intense time of everything because your dreams are invested in, in it and your relationships with people, with, with your bandmates and everyone everyone's families and their relationship with that back home and then you know everyone got girlfriends and then that entered the picture and then our, our manager and ourselves you know just the relationship that people had with themselves and their own ambitions and um perceived failures or successes or you know it was just and our youth as you say our youth at the time it just made it all very very difficult plus yeah. um, drinking you know, but sometimes it wasn't difficult. Sometimes it was just easy and fun and very flowing. And it was, 
it was a roller co- it was that cliched roller coaster from that point of the going up and down in terms of ease and difficultness and uh, you know all of that sort of stuff but I, th- I think we all actually I don't know I can't speak for everyone but um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah I think generally people take you know look back on it with rose-tinted spectacles now which rather than any kind of rancor or bitterness I think was it a decision to sort of split together or what was the if you don't mind yeah I think I think for many uh, different reasons it sort of fractured to in 1999 uh, there was kind of maybe perceived we didn't get uh, the success that we wanted which is a crazy thing to say because it was such a short space of time and also other people did and do perceive that we had great success at that time Mm. and so it's crazy to say that but for the uh, but um we just didn't we you know we wanted to be number one all the time everywhere and any and if we weren't we just saw that as a failure and and so that was playing a part and then there were just lots of behind the scenes things in the end i think it, it was just a kind of a natural a natural ending i think that um people just wanted to go on and do different things or just be happier and um Hagop went to uni and just wanted to do that and i think also it was pressure from parents because we were still young enough to have that pressure from parents saying mm. come on this isn't doing what you wanted it to do so just get an education and get a proper job and forget about this head in the clouds thing and I think that was coming at us from different quarters still between symposium ending and my debut album was a kind of wildernessy hodgepodge of things which maybe weren't you know just didn't come to fruition and um, it was still fun in, in a way but lots of mistakes there mm. and wastes of time where are you now then in terms of songwriting and, and, and uh, projects? What, what are you up to? Um, I've still been writing. There is, there is a second album out there called Pagan Leader, and I'm working on a, a third one of those. And I've got a few things. I'm trying to write for other people a bit, I'm trying to do film scores and all of those kind of cliched things maybe. But um, I'm also trying to write some Christmas songs for Bjorn again in an ABBA style. There might be something with Symposium happening. There might not. There might not. So, I'll, uh, you know, I'm going to say no, no further about that. If, if, if there was going to be something with Symposium happening, I would be very, I would be very excited. Oh. <laughs> and there might be. And there might be. But I can say no more. I can say no more. Ah. <laughs> That was going to be my last question, essentially. Would you ever do anything together? Has there ever been any talk of coming back and doing some shows? Or have you, and have you been asked? I mean, have there been conversations over the years? I think, yeah. I think um, the ice, if you like, is thawing. And we did all meet up for a curry in Hammersmith um, when we were allowed to just out of lockdown. And I think lockdown sort of come full circle in this discussion, but I think, you know, lockdown did 
make people reassess and think about things more. People had more time spent in their own heads, didn't they, than before mm. at home, for better or worse. Um, but I think in the case of symposium uh, and symposium members, it seemed to be for the better. Um, and it was lovely meeting up and recognizing that we were all married and we all had children and were having the same happiness and joy and difficulties with that sort of situation mm -hmm. you know the the sort of not you know not terrible difficulties but you know just getting up at christ o'clock and having unreasonable toddlers being unreasonable um which is just part of the course isn't it yeah i just think aware it was never on the cards before it just seems to be i think it is a lot to do with the passing of the passage of time mm. and uh that mellows people and makes people have gratitude for what there was you know and people become more forgiving about the way we might have been back there or or if individuals acted not brilliantly uh, to be forgiving about that and understanding about that and recognize why and i've encountered that a lot with different people i've met from um from that era from different bands we played played with and obviously i don't want to name too many names <laughs> right mm -hmm. now but um i can tell you afterwards <laughs> but um who they are but a lot of people think they they didn't act brilliantly in those times and you know who can blame them and i certainly don't blame any of them and it's it's just, it's just it's very fascinating to me the sort of rock and roll world i watched rocket man with my wife the other night yeah that's good <laughs> a middle-aged thing to say but yeah <laughs> we I, we watched it and uh it just strikes me, you know, that whole rock and roll era with all those classic bands from Led Zeppelin to Queen and all of those and what happened and the way it was, the whole spinal tap mentality, that was really of an era. And I think it's sort of over now. You know, I don't think that necessarily exists. I sort of see it sometimes. I catch glimpses of it still when I'm touring. But I think it's by accident rather than design and it's done very tongue-in-cheek it's, st it's still rock and roll to headline Wembley Stadium you know is is rock and roll but not necessarily rock and roll to sort of set a fire extinguisher off in a hotel room anymore or wherever now or throw a tv out the window no smashing instruments up on stage on stage do people do that still have you think, seen anyone do that recently? Not recently. I'm know. sure they do, but it seems such a waste. There's so many people out there that yeah. could, would, would love a new guitar. <laughs> That's always so yeah. I always see it. Just give it to somebody in the audience. Don't do that. I don't understand that. <laughs> yeah. In fact, that is what Dave Navarro did on the gig that we supported Red Hot Chili Peppers. I remember him just handing out his guitar at the end to the crowd. Mm. But then I think, I actually think the crowd, like a, like a bunch of, zombies or banshees they actually sort of tore the guitar apart i think uh. they broke into pieces among themselves and handed it out so no one person got it anyway but, um, so i remember reading 98 when we really went to town on smashing everything up on stage and got 
quite heavily criticized by some people for doing that. But I, I'm pretty sure Green Day, yeah, Green Day just put all their stuff in a massive pile and set light to it at the end of the set. And I thought, <laughs> well, you know, how can you ever go at us? But it's probably because we hadn't sold millions and billions of records like Green Day. But um, uh, but I do remember, you, you know, people were really down on the smashing stuff up for a while. But I think the only reason I did it was because Nirvana did it. Mm. And uh, and I I thought it was cool. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like it was not a a trope of a band, you know, of that kind of 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 your the music you were making and the presence and the, and then what you were doing. It's not like anyone would expect you not to do it. So I wouldn't, you know, <laughs> worry yeah, too. But then I really, it. but in in ninety nine and the gigs we did then, and when we went back to Reading ninety nine, and I remember really being really conscious of it and mm. really wanting to buck the trend and just really turning around having like having every fiber of my being wanting to smash the shit out of everything on stage but just gently placing it the, my bass guitar my immaculate and immaculately looked after bass guitar into its guitar holder and gently putting the little protector over it and leaving the stage you know, just very calmly after a like a ludicrously high energy performance. I really made a point that was my thing in 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 the last year of really just treating the instrument with utmost respect. Mm. Because mm. we had people whose job it was to look after those instruments for us. And I realized, aside from anything else, massively disrespectful to them who just spent ages polishing it and restringing it and making it sound as beautiful as possible. Yeah. Um, even though they didn't actually mind because I spoke to them about it and they said, you know, that's just our job and it's your job to smash it up or not as you like. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I just want to say just one last thing on smashing instruments up. Yes. You know, I wasn't aware of the who um, until sort of after symposium really, but uh, the who smashing stuff up in particular Pete Townsend um, it, it was an art form and I think it was performance art and it definitely wasn't that with symposium for me um, but I can appreciate what the who did um, yeah yeah that's all I will say well the end thank, thank you for you. allowing me to say it <laughs> <laughs> thank you Wojciech for, for coming on I really appreciated your time this evening it's been really it's been great to hear about symposium and everything else that you've been doing and just your your thoughts on everything after all this time and, and really look forward to hearing any news that you might have coming up well thank you very much I would love to come back if yes. and when such time as I have any symposium related things to offer up to you I would love to. I would love you to be the first to hear them. Thank you. Well, I have you on for a, a, a news update, a bonus episode. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Borchek. You're more than welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Borchek for joining me on this episode. Um, it was a really good conversation. I will put links to Borchek's music and his website and things like that in the show notes to this episode so that you can have a listen to the stuff that he's been up to since Symposium. So here we go with all the boring information as to how you can support the podcast if you're still listening. You can follow me on social media, 
Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Back to Britpop. If you'd like to give some financial support, I have a virtual tip jar, uh, buy me a coffee type thing. And the link to that is in the show notes as well. And if you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, it would be fantastic if you could do that. Um, that's it again for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for all your support. I'll be back when I'm back. As I said, it's going to be quite tricky. So let me know who you'd like me to speak to. And I'll do my best to hunt those people down. So see you soon. Mm-hmm.